It is truly a great privilege for me to be back here with the opportunity to open God's Word with you. Not only this Lord's Day, not only this Lord's Day and next Lord's Day, but God willing, the next three Lord's Days. It was not difficult for me to affirm the request from your elders when it, when it came to me. Love being here. We're going to be looking at Psalm 116 and verse 8 today. Psalm 116, verse 8. And before we do so, let us come before the Lord together now, seeking his blessing upon the ministry of his word to us, which we are so desperate for whenever we open God's word and handle it. Let's pray. Our gracious and glorious Father in heaven, we have tasted of your goodness in the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and oh, how sweet a goodness it is. a restored relationship with you. All our sins forgiven for his name's sake. The hope of eternal life and resurrection glory. The promise of glorification and a confirmed righteousness that will be ours forever. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, we come to you now, Father, and we pray that you would help us to hear your word rightly. We pray that your spirit would enable both preacher and hearer We pray, O Spirit of God, that you would search the depths of our hearts and that you would use the ministry of your word as a precious means of grace this evening to make us more like the Lord Jesus than we were when we walked in through these doors. Sanctify us, we pray, by the truth. Your word is true. We ask this for your glory's sake and the good of those you love. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 116, verse 8. Excuse me. I'm about a hundred psalms off. Actually, I'm exactly a hundred psalms off. Psalm 16, verse 8. I'm sorry. So what's in your bulletin is correct. Give you a moment to turn there. Psalm 16, verse 8. 
I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. like to begin by asking you this question, how is your thought life? Are you disciplining your thought life? Or are you bringing your thought life under godly discipline, I should say? How is your thought life these days? The Bible reminds us as man thinks, so goes the course of his life. That's a paraphrase of the Proverbs. But our thought lives determine our conduct, our behavior, how we respond to circumstances, how we relate to others, and much more. I was interested to come across two uh, studies recently. They were done in the world in a secular context, so we'll take them for what they're worth, but at the very least, I think that common sense tells us that uh, there's something here worth considering. One of the studies had to do with the quantity of our thoughts, that is, the number of thoughts that we're having on average every day. The other one has to do with the quality of our thoughts. Of course, we're dealing here in generalizations, and human beings are unique and individual, and we have to be very careful about drawing general conclusions. But as I said, I think there's something to be noted here. As far as the quantity of our thoughts is concerned, recent uh, research done by Queen's University uh, or psychologists at Queen's University, maybe you're here and you've graduated from Queen's or you plan on going to Queen's. But psychologists at Queen's have pinned down the number of thoughts that's, and this is generally accepted by the wider scientific community, the number of thoughts that the average human being has on a daily basis. What do you think that is? They say it's 6,200 thoughts in a single day. So if you're, let's say you're sleeping eight hours a night, you're awake 16 hours of the day, you're roughly having a new thought. Again, this is a statistical average, but you're roughly having a new thought every nine seconds. I'm not doing the math in my head. I have it down here. I'm not that smart. That's a lot of thoughts. What about the quality of our thoughts? Well, this second study uh, I came across recently noted that in our own day, with so much of our lives mediated for us through screens and social media, uh, the internet and all of that stuff, on average, we in our own culture 
are taking in over 2,000 messages per day. Whether we realize it or not, and most of those we're not even realizing we're taking in at the time. They're just coming at us. And our brains are responding. These researchers say that over three-quarters of those incoming messages are being interpreted by our brains as distressing and fearful and anxiety-provoking. So we should not be surprised to note that many people today, it's always been the case, but we're focusing on our own generation and culture now. Many people are struggling in their thought lives, in the world, and in the church. Six thousand two hundred thoughts a day, many of them instigated by social media or the laptop or the phone. Now let me ask you this. Of those six thousand plus thoughts that you have on a daily basis, how many contain reference to God? More than that, how many contain reference to God as the center and supreme reality of your life? We know how David would have answered that question as it's given to us in our text today. I have set the Lord always before me. God is in all my thoughts, says David. More than this, says David, in those thoughts, God is at my right hand, strengthening me, supporting me, loving me, carrying out his purposes for me, providing for me. And it is because of this mindset that David can go on to say in the second half of our text, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Are you a nervous person? Do you get stirred up or do you get rattled quite easily? I need to ask myself the same thing. Don't we long for a steady and firm and consistent sense of peace and stability as we go through this life? Not stability drawn out of ourselves, not peace because of something that we have inside of us, but stability and peace because of the one who is watching over us and protecting us. 
and guiding us. Well, we need to discipline our thought lives if we're going to get to that place. We need to come to the place where we say with David, the Lord is in all my thoughts. We see David had to learn this. You and I have to learn this. It doesn't come naturally to any sinner. Think about it. Adam in the Garden of Eden before he sinned and fell. Adam in his righteousness had God in all his thoughts. Oh, did that ever change when he fell? We inherit that sinful nature. But by the grace of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit and with the Word of God, God is redeeming His people and He is restoring us as he, and He is bringing us back to the place where He will be in all of our thoughts. See, David had to discipline himself. I have set the Lord always before me. Of course, David can't be speaking of pulling God off of the shelf and putting him beside him in the chariot. No way. What is David saying? David is saying that I have had to consciously call to mind the great reality that God is my God and He is with me wherever I am. Wherever I go, whoever I'm with, I have set the Lord always before me. So how can you and I follow in in David's footsteps here and arrive at that place in our lives where we are setting the Lord always before us and able to say with David because he is at my right hand I will not be shaken how do we get to that place We're going to learn, yes, from David, but ultimately from God. We have his word open. And as we consider the words that are before us in the text, words penned by the inspired writer of the Psalms here, we consider in the first place that we must learn to set the Lord always before us. I have set the Lord always before me, says David. Always means always. Not sometimes. Not most of the time. But always. Now perhaps this is a good point to acknowledge that not one of us is going to succeed. 
Perhaps we can take that, this as an opportunity to admire our Lord Jesus Christ, who never once had God out of his mind. His Father was in all his thoughts. We will fail, but that doesn't lower the bar. And it's what we must strive after. And you must remember, and I must remember, that in glory, it's where we will be. God will be in all our thoughts for all eternity as we worship Him at the throne. But we need to begin in this life, and we need to begin by disciplining ourselves to set the Lord before us in our minds always. Now, does that mean that we need to retire from society, move out of the city, perhaps, and find a monastery with other like-minded Christians and sit there alone and just think about God? Is that what we have to do? No. It means that we must take thoughts of God into the lives that He has called us to. Whether that's at work, at school, at church, at home, with your neighbor, in all your interactions as you fulfill the various callings that God has called you to in this world, we must keep God in all our thoughts. We must be relating all of our interactions and relations with other people, relating them all back to God. You see, nothing, friends, in our lives ever ought to be considered in isolation from God. We can't compartmentalize God. We're so good at that. David didn't compartmentalize his God. I have set the Lord always before me, he said. That means we have God in our thoughts when we're working out an issue with our husband or with our wife. That means we have God in our thoughts when we're responding to that neighbor who's hostile to the gospel. That means we have God in our thoughts when we're tempted to honk at the very least. Wave our fist at whatever person who displeases us on the highway. Means we're to have God in all our thoughts when we make major life decisions. I have set the Lord always before me, says Steve. So there's a duty involved there. There's an obligation on our part to take the time to think through everything in our lives in reference to God. But you know what, friends? There's not only the obligation, there is great blessing that is held out to us as we keep God in all our thoughts. Because it also means that we remain mindful of the reality that not a circumstance in our life arises 
outside of the good purpose of our good God. It means that we are mindful that whatever is happening in our lives and whatever is not happening in our lives is not unknown by our God who is at our right hand. There's great comfort in that, isn't there? And friends, too many Christians miss out on the comfort by not keeping God in all their thoughts. But when we are proactively thinking about the Lord as often as we can, then when things come up, we won't be going into panic mode as easily. The Lord will be there in our thoughts, and we will will be much more prone to go into peace mode, at least a lot quicker. So always means always, but that's not enough. As important as that is, and look at in the second place, this, we need to learn to set the Lord always before. We need to learn to set the Lord always before us. You see a few of you looking at me, what is he talking about? It's in the text. It goes without saying. It's, It's obvious, isn't it? It's not so obvious. Because too many of us, and I I include myself here, don't go deep enough when it comes to thinking about God and our relationship to Him, and in particular, thinking about God as He relates to us. What do I mean by that? Well, I tie it back, I can tie it back to the catechism. And... Uh, not only 47, but as you deal with the second commandment and, and idolatry. We must be thinking true thoughts about God as we keep Him always before us. I think we're too often content with vague general, impersonal ideas of God and His attributes. Yes, He's all-powerful. Yes, He is all-wise. Yes, He is holy. But we stop there. We don't go far enough. You see, when David says, I have set the Lord always before me, what's that? Name the Lord. When we see Lord in all capitals in the Old Testament, that's the name. The name. Why do I say the name? It was the the name, the covenant name of God. Theologians refer to as the tetragrammaton, the four letters. The name, the Hebrews, were in such awe and reverence of that they did not say it. They simply said the name. And when they read the Old Testament Scriptures, the temple or in the synagogues, and they came to say Psalm 116 and verse 8, they would say they would not say the name that was there, which would be the what we often have translated as Yahweh. They would just say Adonai. 
Because Yahweh, they wouldn't say that. That was too, too revered of a name. Why was it a revered name? Well, a number of reasons, but one of the things we want to focus on here is that it was the name that God revealed himself to when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And it is the name that God has chosen to reveal himself by in order to convey, what, his covenant love and his covenant faithfulness. In other words, it's the personal name of God. The personal name. And you see, we can't just stop with general, uh, generalizations about God and His attributes. We have to remember that the Lord is my Lord. Oh God, you are my God. And when we think about that God who is our God, we must be thinking biblically about that God. You remember in the days of Moses, where Moses was getting a little bit antsy about moving forward, leading the people. He was following the, the golden calf, so of course he would be shaken up by that. Um, who will lead these people, Lord? Are you going to go with us? And Moses begs the Lord to show him what? To show him his glory. Show me your glory. What does God say? Okay, meet me tomorrow at this rock, at this time. You'll get to see my glory. And so Moses, I believe it was the next day, goes to the, to the place. And you see, God's glory was too much for Moses to behold. But Moses could only see the back of it, the tail end of it, we might say. But even in that tail end, what does Moses see? Well, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, these are the words that came to Moses as God revealed his glory to his servant. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That is the Lord. When you think of God as he relates to you in your life, is that the Lord you are thinking of? Or is it some idea of God that you're either comfortable with 
Or perhaps you don't know any better. When we think of God, we must be thinking of the God who has revealed himself in his word. And most supremely, in his son, Jesus Christ. Because all we have the benefit, the blessing, the glorious privilege on this side of the cross of Calvary of knowing that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. If your thoughts of God have nothing to do with Jesus, you're way off. You come to God through Jesus and through Jesus alone. We looked at Shorter Catechism, question 47. Today, boys and girls, maybe you remember question four. What is God? The older theologian and professor of Old Princeton Seminary, Charles Hodge, I believe it was him, once said that the best definition of God ever penned was that done by the Westminster Assembly in the Shorter Catechism. And yes, we can debate whether this is a true definition of God, but at the very least, it is a glorious description. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's the Lord that David had set always before him. And it was because of that that David could say, I will not be shaken. I have set the Lord always before me. Well, thirdly and finally, I want us to consider this. That even what we've looked at so far, as important as it is, as necessary as it is, alone it is not enough. There's still more that we must understand and grasp hold of as we learn from God's word this evening. And our own experience teaches us this. 
My heart teaches me this every day. We can know our Bibles. We can know our systematic theologies. We can know the doctrines of God's attributes. We can memorize and quote Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number four. We can bring all our thoughts under quite an impressive level of self-discipline. Yet, there are not a few times where we find ourselves struggling to actually be confident in the God who is at our right hand. There are times where we struggle to say with that victorious tone here in David, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You think about those times when circumstances unravel in a day for you. You think about those times where you are wrestling and wrestling and wrestling against besetting sin and it still seems to have the upper hand. And either your own heart or the devil himself comes along and says, what God would sit at your road, stand at your right hand and support you and protect you, O sinful man or sinful woman or sinful boy or sinful girl? How could you be confident that this God is for you? You're a worm. You're vile. You offend this holy God on a daily basis. And we believe. And we start to question God. Or we panic. We lose peace. Why is this so often the case? Well, to begin with, we don't truly believe that God is at our right hand. In other words, we don't truly believe that God is for us and not against us. You see that the disciplined thought life for the Christian embraces the reality of faith. But why do our hearts so often struggle to believe that God is for us and not against us? Because we don't deserve it. Not one of us deserves it. And deep down, we know it. Not one of us deserves to have an ounce of support from the glorious, almighty, triune God, creator of heaven and earth. And we know it. 
and we fail and we fall and we trip every day. So how can we say with triumphant confidence He is at my right hand. And because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David knew God as his Redeemer. And we must, like David, know God as not only our Creator, but our gracious Redeemer. I'm going to flesh this out in a minute. You know, it's written in the Bible somewhere, O blessed is the man whose sin has been forgiven. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not count iniquity. Where is that found? Am I quoting Romans? Or am I quoting Psalm? It's both. The Apostle Paul in Romans 4 is quoting David who understood the gospel grace and mercy that covered his sin and gave him a standing with God that he could be confident in. And the only way for you and I to have that confidence that God is for us is to anchor ourselves in the good news of mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. And that is why, friends and brothers and sisters, I want us to close with several passages from Paul's letter to the Romans. beginning with Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and following. And if you don't have this one memorized, I would suggest you put it up there on the list. Because we need to be reminded of this truth every single day, brothers and sisters. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one 
would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And when you're tempted to doubt God's love for you in Jesus Christ, you turn to Romans chapter 8, and you begin reading at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Are you sitting there this afternoon or this evening as a justified sinner by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. A done deal. You are justified. You have been justified. But now let me ask you this. Are you as holy as you one day will be? No. You're not glorified. You're not glorified. But why does Paul say those whom he justified? Paul doesn't say he will glorify. He also glorified. Paul says it because it's God's purpose for the objects of his love. And nothing or no one can stand in the way of that purpose. Not even you. Not even me. And so what Then, verse 31, shall we say to these things, Paul is speechless, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give up? All things. There's your proof, O Christian. God is for you. And you have every right on the authority of God's Word, if that is you, to believe as David believed 
that he is at your right hand. And because he is there, you will not be shaken. So let us go out this week reminding ourselves every day God is for me, not against me. And then repeating Psalm 16 and verse 8. I have kept the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand I will not be shaken. Amen.